we create now shisha briquettes. Mm -hmm. So these are ecologically friendly briquettes that you can put on these um, nargales, on these shishas, to yeah. so you can and, and you can enjoy them. Uh, and we're seeing more and more interest in this area as well. So it's a <laughs> it goes from uh, people's entertainment if you find yeah. that kind of entertaining to people in the north's commercial and domestic heating to also providing food and heating for uh, people in about a third of the world there is a massive market for this it's not going away anywhere soon we're not electrifying the world fast enough to be able to this to go away so right. we just want to make sure that people that we deal with have as clean an energy as they can have without yes. pollution but and have it as cheap as they can possibly have it Right. So what can we do to make what we do even more green, create even better products for our customers, wherever they are in the world, yeah. and, uh, and expand the reach from being just in this tiny little landlocked country in, in the middle of Africa yeah. into becoming yeah. a global player? Welcome to Rethink What Matters, the podcast dedicated to aligning the economy and ecology with everyone for improved business performance, stronger families, and a greener, cooler planet. And today I'm joined by Dominic Parker, Director at CarShare Advisory, and we're going to be discussing sustainable economies. Welcome, Dominic. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be here. CarShare Advisory is a UK-based company, but actually its basis comes from some work I've been doing in Burundi, which some of your audience may know, some might not know. It's a tiny little country uh, right in the heart of Africa. Um, and I am working with a company there that produces charcoal briquettes made from agricultural waste. Um, and this business has been running for about five years, set up by a remarkable young man out of university. Um, and he has been very successful in growing this business. And over the course of the last year, there have been increasing questions we have been receiving from people in government, around government and quangos and the like, about how did you make this green economy business so successful? What is it that we as governments could be doing to have a successful commercial business there. I think you probably understand this, this Paul, and I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners would as well, that sadly, for many people around the world, and indeed this goes for many uh, governments and, and civil servants and politicians as well, sustainability and the green economy can still be a little bit looked at uh, like tree hugging. Now, there's not there's anything wrong with tree yep. hugging. Hug a tree if you want to. It can feel fantastic. But so this is when government said, well, look, how do how do we move our economy, especially in an emerging market, which has so many difficulties it has to face? Mm -hmm. Could we even begin to consider the green economy, the blue economy and other such things as, as a viable way of, of helping to bring communities, our societies, and for politicians, their electorate? So can we yeah. bring them into something that is commercially, socially viable, which is also good for the planet? Or are we just going to be stuck doing what? frankly, the global north has done for years and years and just risk playing catch up. Yes. I'm making yes. a very short story, very long here. But so Carter <laughs> Advisory was born out of that in helping governments and their associated different partners to understand how you can create policies and environments to be able to grow green economy businesses. And I think that is the challenge, isn't it? That we all would like to have a sustainable economy. 
um, and live in uh, live in a sustainable economy. Um, and there are, you know, the governments may have these great aspirations for delivering that, and there may be policies and rules and regulations that they put in place to try and implement that. But the reality, I think, can be very different on the ground. So, um, what can we do to help, you know, those on the ground, small businesses, if you like, you know, create uh, sustainable economies? What, what, what? Um, how does Carge Advisory get involved there and, and help with that endeavour? I think that's a really interesting question, Paul. I'm going to take it a little step back, if I may, because I think there's a part of this that that is that is a precursor to it, which is critical. And I think a lot of this comes down to there was a phrase a, a good African friend of mine has said uh, repeatedly in different scenarios, and it applies just as well as to this. It is the role of the government to plow the field and to get the field ready, but it is the role of the private sector to then plant the seed, to nurture the field, and to harvest the crop. Mm-hmm. And the problem I think we face in sustainability, and again, I'm, I'm coming to this from the, the basis of, of emerging economies, and particularly those in Africa. The key to this is just an ignorance of what can be done. Mm-hmm. And that's not a willful ignorance. It's not people being deliberately difficult. But it's people yep. going, I just, I maybe come from a background in economics, if I'm lucky. Uh, or in sociology or some such thing. And I understand a bit about the game of politics. But this whole green economy, blue economy thing, you're just saying words to me now. And I don't know what we do or how we do it. Or where, we, where do you even start with this? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we have issues talking to people about things like, which I'm sure many of your listeners would, would agree, carbon credits, which is a fairly basic thing that people talk about now. We have politicians and civil servants who have no idea what a carbon credit is. And so there's a part of a basic introduction to things like that. Okay. Are you in particular referring to Africa? Because I think that's where you work mainly. Is that, would that be fair? That's, this is, I'm, I'm talking particularly about my experiences in Africa. I've, I've worked there and off for the last 25 years. So, okay. um, yes, this is, this is particularly there. I'm not suggesting that all governments are the same, but those in emerging economies, those that have so many um, stumbling blocks to deal with, this just mm-hmm. seems like another one to put in the way. Um, and it's trying to help them to understand how we can go about making a simple transition to a cleaner, greener, friendlier environment that's better for people today and people in the future. You asked right. a very good question about how do we get um, people to, to buy into this and how do we get, how do we get communities and, and, and people involved? And I think for this, like so many other businesses as well, the key to this is there has to be proof of concept. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to show people how things can work and how things can be better. Yes, yes. And that's particularly where we combine Kaje Advisory with the other Kaje businesses that there are. Right. We bring those together to show how this can work. Okay. So what are those other Kaje businesses? So the, the first Kaze business, the principal one this all sprang from, is a company called Kaze Green Economy. Kaze is the founder's surname um, in Burundi, Elfin Kaze. Kaze actually means welcome uh, in Kirundi, the local language. Um, he, in 2018, with about $30 in his pocket and coming out of university where he had been looking at environmentalism, had seen that there were a lot there was a lot of deforestation in Burundi. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Burundi's got about 12 million people or so living there. It's, it's a very, very concentrated population in a small country. And it is, there's very, very little electrification in the country. Uh, and most people, actually, like about, about a third of the world in, in gross terms, but about uh, nearly all the people in Burundi cook using wood or wood charcoal. Right. Now, the downside of this is that for the population to be able to do this, they were getting through between about three and a half thousand and four and a half thousand hectares of forest every year. Deforesting mm-hmm. that amount of hectares every year just to be able to cook and eat. Now, when it comes to things like hectares, that doesn't mean very much to me. So I always have to go and kind of convert that into things that I know. So, so that would be the equivalent of around about 5,000 to 6,500 World Cup football pitches. Right. Every okay. year. Uh-huh. Or I mean, there's another equivalent you can do here. If you, if you have any listeners in, in America or New York, it's about 10 to 15 Central Parks every year. Okay, no small thing. That is an enormous amount. And this has been the case so much so that Burundi only has about 5% forest cover left, mm-hmm. which okay. has a major impact not only on the biosphere and what we call you within that, but also on carbon sequestration and all the other things that your listeners will know about. Okay. okay. So his view was well, how can we deal with this? There are other things that deal with that they are things like uh agricultural waste 80 percent of the population of burundi is involved in agriculture mm-hmm. so how do we bring this into it because there's a lot of food produced there's a lot of waste from that food which is then burnt which also contributes to global warming and so on. right so right. we take the waste from that agriculture we pay the farmers for it yeah and we convert that into charcoal briquettes Right. Which are a clean energy. So they have a higher calorific value than wood and wood charcoal. So they burn better. They burn for longer. Mm-hmm. They don't give out anywhere near the toxic emissions that wood and wood charcoal do. Right. And also, beneficially for people in a very poor country, it's cheaper than wood charcoal. So it benefits the community enormously. In the process of this, we also produce something called biochar. Biochar is is basically crushed charcoal that gets made into, it's kind of glued together using natural resins into these charcoal briquettes, but it can also be used as a natural fertilizer. Okay. It's referred to by many people as black gold these days, actually, um, as it's so good. And we then sell that back to the farmers, which means that they can take their denuded soil and they can make it a lot healthier, which means they can grow more, which means they can sell more, which is good, which means they produce more waste. Which wow, means we can take more waste, we pay them for it, and we can make that into briquettes that we can sell. Anyway, see what it's called gold. That's amazing. It is. That's I mean, the, the whole thing is is brilliant. We also are now in the process of taking the extraordinary heat that is produced in our factory in Bujumpura in Burundi. Yeah, and we're using heat capture technologies to convert the heat that's produced in making all of this into electricity, which we can then put back into the national grid. So this is a popular circular business. And this is, this is how we start this at the basis, Paul. This is what we say to people like governments. Look, we have created something here that is circular. It benefits the farmers. Yes. It benefits the retail customers. Better yep. quality charcoal for cooking with. Yes. It benefits 
us because we're a business and you need to show that businesses can operate in your economy. Mm-hmm. Create charcoal, which benefits the farmers even more by creating better soil for them. We put energy back into the grid. Yep. Green economies can work. I think that's, a, that's such a brilliant idea with the briquettes. So what, what, no, what is the market for these briquettes? There is an enormous market for this. Most people don't realize that about 30% of the world still cooks using firewood or, or wood charcoal. And then when you've got a population of what, we're near 8 billion now, I think, or something, that's, that's a pretty sizable part of the world population. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, we have... Uh, a lot of our local communities buying this and, and other communities are, are around Burundi who are buying this. But we've also found other benefits for it as well, because it's not just wood charcoal we produce. We also produce um, biomass logs, which is not charcoal, but highly, highly pressured um, uh, agricultural waste that's put together, something like rice husks or, or, or coffee parchment, things like that, that's, that's pushed together at very high pressure and high temperatures, which can burn as well. We can make pellets out of that, which are perfectly good for using in Europe, North America, in anywhere across the global north, for both commercial and domestic heating. Particularly right. at the moment when we're seeing more and more pressure in, in Europe and, and North America and, and elsewhere for making sure we have clean energies to be able to do this with and we don't have smoking wood logs and so forth. So that is a market we're expanding into. On the charcoal briquette side, there is another interesting market here, which we're just starting to get into. And I love this, uh, particularly with the imminent um, presence of of COP28 in Dubai. I don't know how aware you are of of shisha, sometimes called Hubble Bubble, sometimes called Nargile. We create now shisha briquettes. Mm -hmm. So these are ecologically friendly briquettes that you can put on these um, Nargiles, on these shishas, to... So you can and, and you can enjoy them, uh, and we're seeing more and more interest in this area as well. So it's a uh, it goes from uh, people's entertainment, if you find yeah. that kind of entertaining, to people in the north's commercial and domestic heating, to also providing food and heating for uh, people in about a third of the world. There is a massive market for this. It's okay. not going away anywhere soon. We're not electrifying the world fast enough to be able to this to go away so we just want to make sure that people that we deal with have as clean an energy as they can have without pollution but and have it as cheap as they can possibly have it right so what can we do to make what we do even more green create even better products for our customers wherever they are in the world yeah and uh and expand the reach from being just in this tiny little landlocked country in in the middle of africa into becoming yeah. a global player. And this, I think, is the key part to this for, for, for me and one of the reasons I got involved is that for countries in Africa and businesses in Africa, they need to be able to see that being commercial is not a bad thing. Mm, okay. you don't have, just because you're working in the green economy, you don't have to be a social enterprise. It's right. very good if you are one. I don't have a problem with that at all. But if you are working as a commercial business and you're making it a success and you're making the world a better place and you're employing people and those yes. employed people are then feeding their families and, and, and so on and supporting other people and then maybe get ideas to go and do their own businesses off the back of it and you're creating an economic environment which yes. grows and prospers, that is a good thing. And so when I came to this, what I wanted to bring to it, and I'm hoping I'm doing with this, is bringing a, because I've got quite a few gray hairs now. It's bringing right. a bit more of an international perspective to it of what could be done. And 
it seems to be where we're going and the business is growing and we're expanding into different things and well the future is gold yeah, yeah uh, if you so yeah if you could tell us a little bit more about the customers then for these briquettes and what they might be doing at the moment um, where perhaps this is a you know, better alternative so the customers for our briquettes um in their basic form uh are really families that have no other form of access to energy in any consistent way, and they need that for cooking. And that, that there is a huge market for that in uh, and around Burundi and across Africa and across, as I said, about a third of the world. But more interesting of this are, are organisations in the north, global north. Mm-hmm. And there are there are two ways I'm going to spit this out. The first one is. Um, Businesses that are looking for energy sources, which may have looked traditionally to wood pellets, wood biomass, Mm -hmm. um, and use that for powering industrial heaters or domestic heating. Mm -hmm. It's all very well, and we support people creating uh, or using wood biomass. It's great. It's a very sustainable way of doing things in as much as you can replant forests and trees and we're all in favor of that mm-hmm. there was a piece of research that was done that was published last year which unfortunately says that in certainly in the more uh, areas closer to the equator only about 50 percent of replanted reforested areas actually take mm-hmm. because saplings take a lot of management and, and maintenance right. so we are very pleased to see companies that are reforesting and and so forth yep but more needs to be done to check how successful that reforestation is mm-hmm. because if only 50 percent of it is taking more yep. needs to be done in that area when yep. we're using agricultural waste to create biomass logs and yep. charcoal briquettes we are taking waste that would otherwise be burned and pollute the atmosphere or left to rot and pollute the atmosphere creating yep. into that something that can be burnt that was going to be wasted anyway, uh, yeah. or creating something that is a clean energy source. So we are very interested in speaking with organizations anywhere around the world that are looking for biomass logs, biomass pellets, charcoal briquettes as a commercial or domestic heating source, clean energy, domestic or commercial heating source. On the other That's side of it, which is more interesting for some people, is actually in the retail world. Because what we are also creating is environmentally friendly, eco-friendly barbecue briquettes or shisha briquettes. So if people want to use this, we have briquettes that burn at a higher calorific value for longer, emitting far fewer toxins in their smokes uh, and generally can be cheaper as well um, than wood charcoal. So, yeah, so we're, we're also really interested in people in maybe weirdly in the area of retail. Because what we are creating can be used as both barbecue briquettes and shisha briquettes. So if right. you want to have a barbecue, our briquettes can be used. Obviously, they are a cleaner form of energy. They have a higher calorific burn value. Yeah. Um, they're good for the environment because we're, we're using waste that would otherwise pollute the atmosphere yeah. um, from either rotting or from being burnt by farmers. So you're yeah. doing good while enjoying a barbecue or while enjoying a shisha. And we're always yeah. interested in talking to any restaurants or distributors or anybody like that who who wants to get involved with us and doing good for the world while enjoying yourselves you know if we are to raise africa up i think you know yes. it is all about energy isn't it and there are various sources of energy 
Um, biochar is one source of energy, but there's also solar, there's hydro. There's lots of different forms of energy, but nothing happens without an energy source. So what's, yeah. what's your view on that across Africa? One of the biggest issues of Africa, and this is in everything that it does, is a lack of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But in the world of energy, this is a marvellous benefit for Africa because it is not relying on legacy infrastructures that require a huge amount of maintenance mm -hmm. and a lot of upkeep. Mm -hmm. Now, there are amazing things being done by governments all over Africa and actually indeed all around the world to put in place major modern clean energy infrastructure from wind turbines to dams and hydroelectric to solar farms and electrical yep. grids, batteries for storage, all of these great things. Yep. Loads of them going on. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy that that is happening. But this, this top-down approach, I shouldn't say but, I'm going to say and this top-down approach has a problem in that it takes a long time. And it's hugely cost intensive. It's actually hugely labor intensive as well. And you have to have the capacity building within countries to build these things. Yep. I am not in any way saying stop doing this. It's critical. It's vital. And it's great what the government is doing. here, But it takes yep. time. Yep. So our view is, again, in Africa, and this can be done across all emerging markets, to be honest, Paul, is to say you need to have two approaches. You need to have a top-down approach, which the government is doing and takes time. But it's taking dramatic steps in doing that. Yep. simultaneously though you can have a bottom-up approach mm -hmm. and what we're seeing and indeed we're involved in but what we're seeing principally is how can you take things like let's start with solar how can you take solar and, and make that available right in burundi it's again a small country it's pretty sunny it stays about 25 degrees most of the year it's pretty much on the equator we are working with communities and we're working with businesses to put in place solar into their onto their buildings onto the land near them which they can use to power a local grid right or which we can then feed back into the national grid the building of the national grid as it's going on we're also doing the same with hydro and we're actually just starting this now there's there's huge hydro projects going on you see a, particularly this in in east africa um following down the the nile and, and around the great lakes region Wow. Um, but there's also very, very hilly places in the Great Lakes part of, of the world. Yep. Um, and so it's quite simple to be able to say, why don't we create mini hydroelectric power stations on the hills? Right. So you have a, a river or a, a, a rivulet that runs down for about, let's say, 100 meters, 150 meters. Yep. That is then channeled to power a small hydroelectric turbine. And that right. can power a local community. Dominic, let me ask you this. This is all, this sounds great. Yes. You know, Africa, fantastic country, lots of natural resources, yep. lots of sun, at least in my imagination, but I believe there's <laughs> lots of sun. And, um, you know, and the technology is there. You know, there's no new technology going on here. So what's the challenge here? Uh, <laughs> the challenge comes down to being able to get the equipment necessary into various parts of Africa. If you look at the large economies, the likes of the Nigeria, South Africa's, Egypt's, Kenya's, it's fairly easy to do that. They have strong economies. We can get things in pretty quickly. If you look at smaller uh, countries and economies, poorer countries, certainly, mm -hmm. the yep. question for them is, how do we find the capital to do this? Mm -hmm. And indeed, in the particularly small ones, 
which may often have reserved currencies. How do we convert that capital into dollars or other hard currencies so we're able to acquire this? That's the main thing. The big issue is, is finding the capital to do it. Finding the, cap- find, find, find the capital. But is the desire there in these countries to do this, or are oh, yes. they distracted by wars and cultural infighting? <laughs> you could look at Britain and say the same thing. Um, no, I, don't, I, I think there are, there are always people who are going to be um, distracted by power in itself. The politicians that I've ever met, the civil servants that I've ever met, um, have genuinely had the interest of the people at heart for the overwhelming majority of them. Mm-hmm. And this is something they want to do. And this is part of what Koji Advisory does, mm-hmm. is to show people, actually, look, it, you, you don't have to have this multi-billion dollar project at the outset. Start small. Right. Mm-hmm. Start small. Proof of concept. Mm-hmm. If we can, If we can get you to learn how to do it in a small town area, Yep. Then there's no reason why you can't build the capacity to expand that out to other areas. Well, I'd imagine you'd need some kind, you know, you need a certain amount of commercialization within the country to make this happen because you need some you need some trade going on. You need a market for the energy that you're producing, you know, so people have got to have a reason not just to buy it to switch the lights on, but in order to make stuff and sell it, you know. Yes. So how does that fit in? Yeah, everybody wants to make a living. Everybody wants to do better for themselves and for their families and for their, their children and future generations. Okay. Burundi in itself is, if you accept GDP as being an accurate and a fair measure of wealth, yep. Burundi is the poorest country in the world. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't actually accept that as being a, a fair measure of wealth, but a lot of people do. Um, I spend a lot of time in Burundi. Yep. Everybody works. There are great businesses there. There are people bringing in businesses all the time. There are people who want more and are working to do more. And for them, and again, I'm using Burundi as an example because I know it so well. For them, the core to this, as it is for every country in the world, is I can't make things unless I have power. Yeah. So my pressure is on the government and on other local businesses who can be independent power providers. Right. To structure this and set this in place. Because if I've got power to be able mm-hmm. to make things that pe- that I know people need because I also have the problems of facing these issues of needing things. If I can make the things that people need, I know people will buy them. Mm-hmm. The other so, thing that fits into this, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to be brief about this as well, is there's something that you may be aware of and your listeners may be aware of called the African Continental Free Trade Area, mm-hmm. uh, which was established a small number of years ago. Um, I believe 53 of the 54 countries of Africa are now signatories to this, right. which is the largest free trade area in the world. It's double the size of the EU. Yeah. Free movement of goods, peoples, and services. For the overwhelming majority of stuff, there's a tiny amount that, it, that there are some taxes on, but free movement of goods, services, and people. So if we can make things in Burundi that we can sell to people in surrounding countries like Rwanda and Tanzania and Democratic Republic of Congo and Zambia and so on, yeah, we'll buy it. And then market economics kicks in because you know, if you can make it cheaper and sell it for more, you make it cheaper in Burundi and sell it for more in Zambia, hell do it. Yeah. Yeah. So so I do remember actually reading a little while back that there is a very tight correlation between uh, the supply of electricity. So how intermittent the supply of electricity and GDP. This is there's a very strong correlation there. So that in itself seems to be a very good business case for saying, look, you know, if we can sort out the power supply, your GDP is going to go up. Yep. 
And at least at the beginning, probably health does improve the GDP. You know, it maybe deteriorates later on, uh, <laughs> yeah. but that's another subject. Uh, but at least, in, at least in the beginning, everybody gets to feed themselves, gets a roof over their head, they get an education, there's some health care. Um, and so, so what, what's the problem with that business case then? Why, why is this not a breeze for you? What, what, what's, uh, you know, why don't they look at that and go, yeah, sure, let's go and let's roll this out? Oh, they are. This is the thing. I think okay. um, this is every government I've ever worked with in Africa, and there are a few, um, is doing what it can to put power and electricity in place. Right. All of them. Yeah. And like I, like I was saying earlier on, this is the, the, one of the strengths is a lack of legacy infrastructure. Right. So there are new things coming up all the time mm -hmm. that can be put in place. One of the things that we've spoken about, uh, Paul, offline, um, has something called piezo electricity. Oh, yes, that's right. Exactly. Which is, we are, we are working on at the moment, um, and it's a really clever bit of technology. So if you go back to remembering your school day physics, I don't yeah. have a tough time remembering things like that. But if you do, there's a thing called kinetic energy. Mm -hmm. So what we do with this is we say, let's build a paving stone, a flagstone. Yep. That can move ever so minutely when you tread on it. Piezo electricity takes that kinetic energy of you treading on a paving stone and it moving slightly, and it converts that into electricity. So if, to keep put it simply, you could walk or drive down a pavement or down a road, and as your wheels or your feet pass over these pavements, you are creating electricity. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a very good case study of this being done in Brazil with a company that had uh, gone into one of the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, and they yeah. had covered the surface of a of a football pitch. When I say football pitch, it was a, a bit of land that was used as a football pitch. And uh, then having made this into a piezoelectric football pitch, let people play, play soccer on it. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all aware that the Brazilians are rather fond of football. So the pitch was pretty much used all the time. Yeah. Anyway, the power from this being used, I wouldn't say 24 hours a day, but a large chunk of the day in the evening ended up being able to, to power a large proportion of that favela for free. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing yeah. about what we're talking about with Africa is there is the space to be able to bring this into play. Right. So it's a, a lot of it is about funding, then. It is about raising the capital and the investment. Yes. <clears throat> and does microfinance play a role here for you? Ooh, I love microfinance. Uh, it's a really interesting question again. I think there's, a, there's another way of looking at it. Microfinance, yes. And there are plenty of great organizations that can do this. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that's quite interesting, which we're starting to see in different places, and that actually which I think is more important, is is crowdfunding from the diaspora. Right, okay. Now, uh, the African Union uh, splits Africa into North Africa, Central Africa, Southern Africa, East Africa, West Africa, and diaspora. Mm -hmm. Because the diaspora is a huge, uh, has a huge membership, shall we say. And a lot of the people in the diaspora want to be able to not just send funds back home to help their families, but also to help develop countries and environments. So yeah. we are seeing more and more cases of organizations setting up crowdfunding sites targeted specifically at diaspora to help fund local projects. 
So okay. it's in the form of taking microfinance in a slightly different direction. Can you just give us a little bit more detail? Can we get into the weeds of what exactly you're doing there and how you're helping to help Africa become a more sustainable economy? Maybe with some case studies or some stories. Sure. Know, what, what specifically are your skill sets there that are helping companies to um, find their feet in Africa? Sure. The key to this, Paul, has, has always been how do we help governments bring about the policies to enable the bottom-up development of, um, of, the, of the green economy in countries? So how do we help them to mm. help businesses and people benefit from the green economy? Yeah. So, for example, uh, let's take Lake Tanganyika. Second mm -hmm. deepest lake in the world. Um, Burundi sits right on the edge of that. Um, nothing happens on it. There's a couple of ships that go on it. Um, right. Pretty much it. Okay. So how can, we, how can we do something with this that is to the benefit of the government or any mm -hmm. government, with any country that borders um, Lake Tanganyika or indeed Lake Victoria or any other of the Great Lakes in the Great Lakes region? Right. Part of this is, luckily, they have not been uh, overly polluted um, in the ways that you might see up in the global north and other areas as well. And there is pollution, but not dramatic amounts. So actually, the worst pollution actually is water hyacinth. Um, but um, there's nothing else much there. So what can we do to take, for example, the blue economy into consideration here? So this is talking with the government and say, what can we do with local communities mm -hmm. to maintain the biosphere of, in this case, Lake Tanganyika. Right. What can we do to work with funders, development finance institutions, banks around the world to say, government, you have a national debt. Mm -hmm. What if we refinance this national debt in such right. a way that we will create blue bonds? So if you, the government, preserve a third of the water space that you have on Lake Tanganyika. Yep. You encourage the ecological development of it. So it yep. becomes a natural, it, it retains its position as a natural environment. Yep. We will swap out, we will put available a fund to swap out your national debt for that. So the more that you do this, the mm -hmm. more funds we will give you in lieu of your national debt. Right. Which okay. means you have more capital available then to invest in the socioeconomic improvement of your country. Okay. So that is one example of how we do this. Um, you can same do with you can do that with the uh, green bonds and the like in, in, in wooded areas and, and forests and, and the like there. So that's just okay. that's just one part of it. One of the critical things for us has been how do and I think as we said this at the maybe at the outset of the of the podcast. One of the critical things is how do you get people to understand what the green economy actually is? A lot of it is education, Paul. A lot of it is, what do we mean when we say carbon credits, green bonds, green finance? What do we mean when we say sustainability, circular economy? Mm -hmm. And then once you've explained what these things are and how they fit together, what policies can we put in place that will enable investors in these areas, these sectors, right. or people who have an interest, an interest in the environment, 
and there are an increasing number of investors and funds out there who are finding it difficult to find anything to invest in at the moment and love this area. How do we create an environment for them with the appropriate policies, with the appropriate structures in place where we say, look, we have an energy project. Look, we have a blue finance project on Lake Tanganyika that you might want to get involved in. The yep. one thing I would say to any organization who, who sees the opportunity in Africa, and the opportunities are legion, is make sure you work with somebody on the ground who understands local regulations, local laws, local business cultures, local cultures, local languages, and, and so on. Because without boots on the ground, yes, it's a real struggle. It's very much about having the right contacts, isn't it? And they, they can get those contacts through yourself. I, I yeah, through us, they're very welcome to do that. When this is this is uh, very important to us, and we have contacts across across the continent. I wouldn't necessarily say in every single country, but we have direct contacts in a lot of the countries, and we can get to them. We've been we've been around a long time, so um, yes, okay. we're very happy to help people who want to do that. Okay, so thanks very much, Dominic, for your time on this podcast in helping us to understand, uh, you know, what a sustainable economy is. And uh, yeah, it's really great. It's been great to find out a lot more about what you're doing there with the charcoal um, briquettes as well. So yeah, once again, thanks very much, Dominic, for your time. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you.